Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's going pretty good. Beautiful day. I have no complaints. Excellent. And I'm excited for tonight's episode. Yeah, I'm crapping my pants. <laughs> I am <laughs> scared. Um, so we're doing Chernobyl part two, part two of three, because I just couldn't stop. So I know I said two parts. I didn't make any promises, though. I was clear that that may not actually happen. Yeah. So here we are. It's going to be a three-parter. I just couldn't help myself. And you know what? There's a lot of information to cover. So yeah. And cool. And we're going to aim for back-to-back episodes. So like this week, record again next week and pump them out just back-to-back. So fingers crossed. That's the plan. So hopefully, hopefully we can pull that off. As long as life doesn't get in the way. (laughs) Which it happens. It happens. Let's just say. And speaking of which... We do have a big announcement at the end of our show, so it's going to be a long one. Just saying, stick around, grab some snacks, grab a drink, grab your glass, you know the drill, but there's going to be a big, big announcement. So grab the bottle. Hell, why not? Do it. You need it. If this story stresses you out like it stresses me out, then you need a whole bottle. Just saying. I would agree. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, prepare yourselves for that. But first, let's shout out our favorite responses from our fluff and stuff question from our last episode. We had some good answers. I like the question. I think it's very fun. And like I just saw before we signed on that we had another answer from Bestie and I haven't responded yet, Bestie, but I will. Oh, and I that one. very exciting. <laughs> yes, like minutes before we recorded. And I was like, huh, Perfect. way to go. That sounds great. And just a reminder that our question was, what doomsday theory do you think will end civilization? Which is just so fun. It is fun and good answers. (laughs) Yes. My favorite came from Luke on Facebook. And he said, Tara took my first answer and Mick took my second and third. Lol, I guess I got to go with boring, old, slow and steady descent into Orwellian dictatorship, leading to famine and a breakdown of social order. (laughs) Which I love. And then he went on to say, anyways, if Wiley is going to buy a plane, I have a couple instruction books he can borrow, which I mean, thank you. I'm sure you want him to do the right thing and learn the planes and, you know, all of that jazz before he just hops in there. But also he doesn't need encouragement. <laughs> just say. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think Tara wants you to give him that book, those books. Yeah. Like. It makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> But again, I appreciate you so much for, for always messaging us and being encouraging anyways. And having awesome answers. Always. Thank you, Luke. Always. Um, my answer, my favorite answer came from Becky on Facebook. <laughs> she said, weaponized, aerosolized rabies virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> How about no? <laughs> right? Here's like, another that's thing. terrifying. Another thing that stresses me out is rabies, which, you know, to a lot of people, they probably don't think about. But in our profession, it's a topic that comes up and it scares the crap out of me. <laughs> I think somebody was like, so zombie apocalypse then? And she's like, yeah, pretty much. Basically, if you want to yeah. boil it down to that. Yes. Yeah. There's a whole movie, actually. It's called Quarantine. It's terrible. I do not recommend oh, it. Oh my God. But it's yeah. so bad. It's like, 
good, but it's about I, like mutated rabies virus, like turning people into zombies. I remember watching that a lot when it first came out, which was many years ago. And I'm just thinking like, this is so bad, but I just want to keep watching it. Right. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's so bad. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and then we have an extra fluff and stuff question that we put on social media because, you know, we had to post a picture of Michelle transporting a donkey in the backseat of a truck because, yeah, you know, so we funny. had to, we talked about it in the last morning news. If you missed that, you should probably go listen, but then it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, it just raised the question of what kind of animals have you transported in your vehicle? Well, or just, yeah, I mean, it was funny though, because we recorded the episode and then my Facebook memories or my Google photos memories or whatever was like, Hey, remember 12 years ago when you put a donkey in the back of a truck? And I was like, Oh, that is way too fitting. <laughs> it was so straight. It was like dead on, like it happened at this time that many years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was so, perfect. So we it was got good. a couple responses from that. Well, actually your response that you'll read from Clara was actually before that she was like, yes, ball. she needed, to she was no. Yes. Um, so <laughs> Claire said on Facebook, great episode, ladies, the calves in the car story reminds me of the night during calving when an unexpected cold snap hit, we headed over to the cows at 3am just to make sure there wasn't a baby calf out in the cold. We found not one, but six brand new baby calves. As we traveled home with six calves and two humans in the cab of the truck, we wondered what the police would say if we got stopped. It all ended well. And in the morning, we headed back with six happy, healthy calves and reunited them with their mothers. Oh. And like just picturing all of you in the cab of a truck with, yeah, no, man, it just That's makes me happy. A lot of bodies and a lot of legs. <laughs> just It's a lot everything. of legs. Yeah. Which way? Yeah. Just so funny that she said that because my thought while we were talking about the topic on the show was like, well, the only time it's really acceptable in my head is like during calving season when it's cold and you got to throw some calves in a truck to go warm them up. Like yeah. that makes sense to me, but I'm like, ah, I won't bring it up because you know, <laughs> what does that have to do with what we're talking about? But it's absolutely relevant because our it's listeners totally are like, yeah, no, been there. So I love that. Yeah. With six, with six, three. Yeah. six, that's <laughs> I mean, hey, if we can keep this going, if anybody can top that, please let us know. We, we, we want to love to know. <laughs> we will like just make little episodes all the way along. Yeah, we little updates. To keep that tally going. Yeah. <laughs> and also Callie Lee's on Instagram replied to our, our question as well. And she said that she's definitely had a goat in the back and a deer. So I... I liked that as well. <laughs> That's fantastic. Goat, I can see. I yep. mean, it's still going to crap all over your car. Well, but... they do that for sure. And they might uh -huh. eat your seats, but. <laughs> yeah, but goat turds are pretty easy to clean up. That's true. That's very true. It would be much better than calves. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Or donkey. Or... I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Known from experience. Yeah. Yes. But anyways, oh, well. at this point, I'm just stalling because <laughs> I am scared to jump into our main topic today, but we should probably do that. All right, friends, grab your glass and get cozy. Let's talk about murder. Tink, tink. All right. Let's do this. Let's so, get it, girl. Yeah. 
We left off Chernobyl Part 1 with plant director Viktor Birkonov approaching the recently exploded nuclear power plant that was still on fire. Many would look to him to provide answers as to what happened in reactor number 4 and what should be done next. First, he had the emergency bunker in the main administrative building opened up for senior personnel to meet as it was designed for staff to escape a nuclear attack. The bunker included phones to reach each department head, decontamination showers, an infirmary, air filters, a diesel generator, fresh water, and a steel airlock door. Next, he ordered for an automatic telephone alert to be sent to all senior personnel to inform them that there was an emergency of the highest degree. This was called a general radiation accident and indicated that there was a release of radiation in the station as well as into the open air. So, so far, so good. Those seem like appropriate first steps to take in a situation like this. However, what the plant director did following this did little to help the problem, and in fact, it only prolonged the issue. Brikhanov began yeah. calling his supervisors to inform them of the accident. This included his boss in Moscow at the USSR's Atomic Energy Authority, the first and second secretaries of the party in Kiev, the Ukraine's energy ministry, and the director of the Kiev Regional Power Supply. And he told them, quote, there's been a collapse, but it's not clear what happened. Dyatlov is looking into it, end quote. But I'm pretty sure a collapse is a little bit of an understatement there, bud. Like full-on explosion, but hey, whatever, collapse, mm, sure. Yeah, yeah sure. Just call it that. Right. He too could not accept the fact that the core had exploded, and just like Anatoly Dyatlov did, he focused the employee's attention on pumping in water to the core of the reactor. Again, this is pointless. There is no core. It exploded. And I'm already so frustrated. We just started. <laughs> oh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> this, is a, this will be an ongoing theme. <laughs> So while Brikhanov bumbled around, firefighters and plant operators were hard at work addressing the multiple fires that were spread both inside and outside of the power plant. These blazes needed to be controlled as soon as possible as they could easily propel the disaster into an even greater catastrophe. Because, you know, it's not bad enough already. Let's just keep going with it. Why not, you know? Affect the world. Why not? <laughs> while we're at it, let's affect the world. So inside the turbine stations, fires raged across multiple levels, and the main concern here was that the turbine machinery was filled with thousands of liters of highly flammable oil, and the turbine generators were filled with hydrogen. Normally, these components were used to cool down the generator coils, but if either were to ignite, it would cause another huge explosion, or the fire could spread down to the other three reactors in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Dealing with the fires on the outside of the building was just as concerning. Surprise! The very flammable roof was on fire. No one no saw that shit. coming! <laughs> A group of firefighters used the fire escape ladders on the side of the buildings and climbed the 20 stories. Once on top, they could look down directly into the burning reactor hall. As always, this is bad news bears. 10 out of 10 would not recommend. Yeah, don't do that. Mm-mm but that was only a fraction of the danger that they were in. There were fires littered everywhere from the burning debris thrown from the explosion, including on top of reactor number three, with the potential for the wind to carry the blaze towards the other two operating reactors as well. So the reactors down the line are being threatened from fire from outside and inside. So not it's ideal. Bad. It's so bad. It's not ideal. Also another concerning factor, 
on the roof where there weren't flames, there were still extremely hazardous materials. From the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham, quote, in the darkness around their feet were hundreds of sources of lethal ionizing radiation, lumps of graphite, fragments of fuel assemblies, and pellets of the reactor's uranium dioxide fuel itself, scattered across the rooftops and emitting fields of gamma rays, reaching thousands of redkin an hour, end quote. Oh, see, I know what happens. I know, I know all the things, but it still just gives me chills. Hate it. Especially because they're just so unassuming, like they just don't realize what those little fragments really are doing to them whatsoever. Yeah. So let's talk about the measurement of Renkin for a minute, as it will come up frequently in this story. In part one, we talked a lot about radiation, what it is, how it was discovered, and its effects, but we didn't talk about how it was measured. The word Renkin may sound familiar, however, as the measurement for exposure to X-rays and gamma rays was named after William Renkin, who of course was the physicist that discovered X-rays. It was the first international measurement for ionizing radiation. This was important for radiation protection because those working with X-rays and gamma rays would have a better idea as to how much radiation they were being exposed to and to determine how much was too much. The disadvantage, however, was that it only measured air ionization, and it was not a direct measurement of radiation absorbed in other materials, such as human tissue. The measurement of Rentgen is no longer used. Instead, there are a variety of more accurate measuring systems depending on what aspect of radiation is being measured. However, at the time, it was better than nothing. Yeah, as long as they were being honest. Well, yeah. More more on that to come, of course. We'll we'll get into that. Yeah, for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Another word we need to define in order to understand measuring radiation is dosimeter. A radiation dosimeter is the device that is used to take these measurements. Michelle and I briefly mentioned dosimeters at the end of part one, as we discussed having our own when we take x-rays. We then have to send them away every three months, so the amount of radiation we have been exposed to can be measured and monitored to ensure that we haven't received too much exposure. So there are two general types of dosimeters, dosimeter badges and pocket dosimeters. Ours were the badges, and they were used to measure cumulative doses over periods of weeks or months, whereas pocket dosimeters are generally used for monitoring over a shorter term. These are essentially ionizing chamber devices that provide an immediate readout of radiation doses and are especially useful when rapid results are needed. Mm -hmm. And we always had to wear our dosimeters under our lead um, gowns. gowns. Correct, yes. So when you take x-rays, like... If anybody's been for x-rays, you're in full lead garb. Like you got a thyroid cover, you got gloves, you got a lead lead gown. You Mm -hmm. have a dosimeter underneath. And technically you should have goggles on as well. Right, So exactly. Mm -hmm. So now let's briefly discuss doses of radiation. In 1950, the International X-ray and Radium Protection Committee recommended limiting full body exposure to 0.3 Rentgen per week. Now, let's read another quote from the book Midnight in Chernobyl to find out what kinds of levels they were dealing with at the power plant. Quote, a fatal dose of radiation is estimated at around 500 rem, Rankin equivalent to man, or the amount absorbed by the average human body when exposed to a field of 500 Rankin per hour for 60 minutes. In some places on the roof of Unit 3, lumps of uranium fuel and graphite were emitting gamma and neutron radiation at a rate of 3,000 Rentgen an hour. In others, levels may have reached more than 8,000 Rentgen an hour. There, a man would, would absorb a lethal dose in less than four minutes, end quote. Ugh. 
Oh, it gives me the willies. <laughs> yeah. A little bit different than 0.3 Renkin per week. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. It's hard mm-hmm. to even comprehend. Yeah. yeah. So let's get back to those poor firefighters that were tasked with putting out the multiple blazes on top of the extremely radioactive roof. So not only were they in a race against time to put out the flames that could potentially spread to the rest of the nuclear power plant, they were absorbing incredible amounts of radiation, although at that time, they were unaware of just how much, as the radiation on the roof wasn't measured until later. To make matters even worse, the plant's fire suppression system had been crushed in the explosion. These were dry standpipes that were designed to distribute water to the height of the building, but when connected to the pump trucks, only air whistled through the hoses. This meant that the firefighters had to drag their hoses all the way up the staircase. They tried to fight the fires with foam and water, but it didn't seem to help at all. In fact, the fire seemed to burn even more severely when water was used, as the materials were so hot from the explosion that the reaction caused a release of oxygen, explosive hydrogen, and radioactive steam. Ugh, can you imagine? Uh, No, no, I can't. It sounds awful. Absolutely. They're like, nothing trained me for this. (laughs) Right? Um, Water's supposed to put fire out, not make it worse. Yeah. The radiation soon began to take effect on the men's bodies. As two more firefighters went up, they met the first group coming down the stairs. They were staggering and incoherent. The men were dragging each other down the staircase as they were all vomiting and trying desperately to get to safer ground. Like, it gives me chills, really. I know, I can't. When the two men passed them and made their way to the top, they found only one hose was still functioning. They fought as hard as they could for 30 minutes and almost every visible fire was put out. But when they attempted to extinguish the flames shooting out of a ventilation pipe, one of the men suddenly lost his vision. So it was time to get out of there. Like GTFO right now. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm done. Yeah. I'm going home. (laughs) Goodbye. On the roof of the turbine hall was a similar situation. The men were struggling to put out the fire as it was so hot that the bitumen on the roof was melting and causing their boots to stick to the ground, so every step they took was a struggle. Though they managed to extinguish the fires using sand to smother the flames in the areas where the hoses could not reach. Ugh. So, you know, need to move fast, but your feet won't move. Like, how That's great. You're sticking terrifying. to the asphalt that they put on the roof. Right. Back at the bunker, Burkhanov was still not ready to come to terms with reality, even after he went down to Unit 4 to take a look for himself. He decided that, yes, there was an explosion, but since it's not possible for a reactor to explode, it must have been the steam separator drum or the turbine oil tank. Just straight-up denial. That's like when the Titanic sank and everybody's like, but it can't sink. She's an unsinkable ship. Right. So it didn't happen. She's sinking. But... So it's in front of your face. (laughs) This is what your eyeballs are for. Come on. (laughs) Most of the others listened to Perkhanov's conclusion, though the plant's civil defense chief, Serafim Voryobiev, knew better. He had used a powerful DP-5 military radiometer rather than the power station's dosimeters, as this device could detect intense gamma radiation fields up to 200 Renkin per hour. Standing outside of the front doors at the bus stop, he took a reading of 150 millirankin an hour, which is 10,000 times higher than normal. When he reported his findings back to those in charge of the situation and urged them to warn the staff and the people of Pripyat, he was told they needed more time to think. 
So he went out and collected more data. As he drove towards Unit 4, it didn't take long for his radio meter to go off the charts past 200 Rankin per hour. Still, Man. I know. Still, Burkonoff was not ready to make any decisions about an announcement until the head of the plant's radiation safety team made his own assessment. He then contacted his boss in Moscow with another update, saying there was some type of explosion and a partial collapse of the turbine roof hall, but the radiation system was still being clarified. When the chief of radiation finally arrived, he gave the measurement of a mere 13 millirankin per hour. Yes, it was a bit elevated, but posed little threat to those in the area. Burkhanov took this opportunity to belittle anyone that he thought was blowing the situation out of proportion because they clearly didn't know what they were talking about and they were trying to cause panic. Vorobiev knew this was a lie and phoned the Ukraine and Belarusian civil defense authorities to warn them, but when he finally got through to an officer in Kiev, they refused to believe his reports as well. Because why would you? Like, why believe the guy that's like, this is way worse than they're making it out to be? Yeah. How frustrating. do you want to just like err on the side of caution and be like, maybe let's listen to this guy. Yeah. And save our people. Mm -mm, no, that is not the thought process that went into any of this. No. <laughs> One person that finally accepted that the worst had happened was Anatoly Dyatlov. He decided he needed to take a look at reactor number four himself, finally. Along the way, he met workers that had skin hanging from their face and hands. Outside of the building, he could finally see the destruction done to the building, the fire on the roof, and the debris scattered all around. He hastily returned to the control room four, where Leonid Toptonov and Alexander Akamov had remained on their post. Dyatlov ordered them to leave, but they felt obligated to stay and help. Following orders from above, the two men then headed to the reactor to open the giant gate valves by hand to get more cooling water inside the core. They tried their hardest, but of course, it was a pointless and fatal battle. Many more men would continue to do the same until Burkhanov and the others in the bunker would acknowledge their mistake several hours later. This work of heroism was all for nothing and would cost many lives. Ugh, it's so brutal. It's so frustrating. Dyatlov was too starting to feel the effects of the radiation exposure. He was now vomiting and losing his strength. He left control room number four for the final time with the reports of the reactor's last moments in his hands. Word of the accident began spreading across the USSR to those that were high up in the energy industry and in the government. This included the Ukraine's Republic's Minister of Energy and Electrification, the Prime Minister, USSR's Ministry of Energy, the KGB, Civil Defense, and the Soviet Army. The duty operator had explained it was the maximum possible emergency, indicating a general radiation accident with fire and explosion, but no one was able to reach anyone directly at the Chernobyl station for clarification. Because everything blew up? Yeah, because everything blew up and they were also avoiding. <laughs> Lots of avoidance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Following this news, the chief engineer at the Ministry of Energy's Department of Nuclear Power assembled the recently developed emergency response team that was trained to respond to accidents of atomic stations. The head of the USSR's civil defense also planned to deploy his troops in order to protect the workers and the nearby population. So even though they haven't received all the details, many can tell that there is a horrible situation unfolding at Chernobyl and something needs to be done about it. Burkhanov still says otherwise, though. 
as he called the Communist Party's nuclear industry chief, and even though he admitted that there was a terrible accident, he assured them that the reactor was still intact. <sighs> like, for what purpose, you exactly. jackass? Right. Like, just because the purpose of lying? Just because you say it is doesn't make it so. <laughs> Ugh, it's so frustrating. I know. Meanwhile, samples that had been taken from the ground and the water around the station revealed the presence of fission products and particles of nuclear fuel. This was conclusive evidence that the reactor core had been destroyed and that radioactive substances had been released into the atmosphere. So that's great. There is finally proof because apparently looking directly into an exploded reactor core is not proof enough or that there are chunks of graphite littered all around the plant, a material that is literally only found inside a reactor. But no, those are not proof enough. But No, no, like look into that reactor core again. Maybe your eyeballs will melt out of your face this time. Right, exactly. Then maybe <laughs> it'll be like, okay, it's There's bad. a problem. We, we have a problem. <laughs> but I digress. Hopefully with this new data, the plant director will finally accept what really happened. But surprise, he didn't. I've already called him a jackass, but um, yeah, jackass. Yeah, it seems appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. When instructed to provide a written report to Vladimir Malamouche, who had just arrived to assume overall control of the crisis, Burkhanov provided a brief description of an explosion, the collapsed roof, and a fire that had already been extinguished. It also included that 34 firefighters were being examined in hospital, nine had burns, and three were in critical condition. One worker was missing and another had died. There was no mention of any radiation injuries and the levels near Unit 4 had only reached 1,000 micro-Rankin per second or 3.6 Rankin per hour. This would be considered a tolerable amount of radiation, but he failed to mention a very important detail. 3.6 Rankin per hour was the highest reading possible for the equipment that was being used to take the measurement. Insert facepalm here. Come on, guys. Like, you think that it was just specifically that number that just happens to be the highest reading? Like, it's only three point six. It's only 3. you know that's that's where the little thingy goes up to. So right. It it can't possibly be any higher than that. It can't go further than that. The little the little thing doesn't go further than that. <laughs> <laughs> this written report had also been sent to one particularly important man. Mikhail Gorbachev, General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, leader of the USSR. Even though the message was urgent, it wasn't actually delivered until late Saturday afternoon. Once it was finally opened, the leader wasn't overly concerned, as even though it was a serious incident, at least the reactor was still intact, right? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Tell yourself that. Well, that's what he's being told, so... <laughs> You, you're the leader of USSR and uh, you're going to believe what you're told just straight off? Come on, Gorby, you know better. <laughs> oh, Gorby. <laughs> Why is that so cute? <laughs> it shouldn't be. He's not really that cute. So. <laughs> no, not particularly, but I quite like the name. <laughs> but finally, in the party's conference room back in Pripyat, Chief Engineer Nikolai Fomin admitted to their mistakes and confirmed that the reactor had been destroyed. There was another alarming revela revelation during this meeting as it became apparent that there was the potential for another chain reaction inside Unit 4 due to whatever nuclear fuel remained. This time, however, if an explosion were to occur, there would be no barrier between it and the open air. 
the physicists estimated that this reaction could occur in less than three hours. And it just gives me so much anxiety. I just can't even. Like, it's impossible to even wrap your brain around that. But, oh, it just makes my stomach hurt. Right? Like, talk about working under pressure. Like, oh, by the way, you have three hours to save the world. <laughs> Good luck. Fix your problems. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Luckily, here's where we'll finally meet someone that plays a significant role in resolving the situation at least to the best of his abilities. Valery Lagozov, first deputy director of the Kurchatov Institute of Atomic Energy, was selected to investigate the accident. Although he was a chemist, not a reactor specialist, he would seek out expert advice in order to help with the situation. Lagozov was also to oversee a team that was tasked with containing the effects of the disaster. His first concern, of course, was the possibility of the new chain reaction. There had already been an effort to drench the nuclear fuel by pouring bags of boric acid on top, which contained neutron-absorbing boron, but they quickly ran out. They ordered another 10 tons from Rovno nuclear power station that was over 300 kilometers away, but the station director was hesitant to part with it. And once it was eventually sent over, the vehicle hauling the material broke down, so it wouldn't arrive in Chernobyl until the next day. Also at this time, Lagozov realized that the heroic efforts made by the workers to pump cooling water into the reactor for the last 12 hours had actually made things worse. The basements yes. of Unit 3 and 4 were now flooded with contaminated water and were sending clouds of radioactive steam into the air. There was also still a fire somewhere inside that needed to be put out and the reactor needed to be sealed off. So not only was it dumb and annoying that they just kept sending people down there, to put coolant water into the reactor, but it actually made it worse. It made it worse. So that just, it makes me even more mad. <laughs> I know. Not that I know anything about nuclear power or like would have known any better myself, but in hindsight, it's very annoying. Very, very, very annoying. <laughs> As this impending doom threatened everyone in the vicinity and across the USSR, just a few kilometers away in the city of Pripyat, life continued on as normal. As executives were arriving, they saw children playing soccer, people out shopping, and there was even, even a wedding taking place. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary until you reached the so-called sanitary zone on the way towards the nuclear plant, where the station officers were wearing leposoc masks that were used to filter radioactive aerosols from the atmosphere. But if children are playing outside just down the road, the officers are just being dramatic, right? Oh, it makes me so angry because of the tiny humans. You mm -hmm. guys know how I feel about the tiny humans. I knew you would have but a problem man, like, <laughs> with that. Oh, I hate it so much. Protect <laughs> yourself, but you know what? Let the children play in the radioactive dust and shit. It's fine. But everybody else is fine, right? What could happen? Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> So to speed things along here, essentially more and more evidence was coming in, confirming that the area needed to be evacuated, but yet those in control were not yet willing to do so. Anyone that pushed the idea was called an alarmist because no one was evacuated during the Mayak disaster, so why would we evacuate Pripyat? Because, you know, the Mayak disaster was handled perfectly and nobody suffered the effects of that one. No, of course not. According to anybody in the USSR, they didn't. Right. <laughs> At around 8 p.m. on Saturday, a series of small explosions and white flashes came out of the plant's ruins. Two hours later, 
the walls of Unit 4 started to shake from a massive roar. Workers took cover as glowing fragments came showering down and their dosimeters went off the charts. That's probably really bad, eh? I would think that's a bad sign. Yeah. Meanwhile, Gorbachev called for an update. Boris Sherbina, first chairman of the Government Commission in Chernobyl, would give the situation report. But he was definitely on the side of, it's not that bad and everyone's panicking for no reason. So that is essentially what he told the general secretary. He assured Gorbachev that they would restart all of the units and they would take all measures to liquidate the accident. Can't really restart a reactor that has been destroyed, but okay. You do you, buddy. Mm -hmm. You try that. Try. Let me know how it goes. Another concerning detail, the other units were still operating as if nothing happened. Some would try to call the operators to get more information about the situation at Chernobyl since they couldn't get through to anyone at Unit 4, but the workers had tight lips as they were told they weren't allowed to talk about what happened. The word was starting to spread around Pripyat, however, as the workers finished their shifts and went home to warn their friends and families, though none of them truly knew what happened or how bad it was. Fun fact, some citizens were trying to take preventative measures against the radiation by drinking vodka. These people believed that radiation created contaminated particles in the blood called shatiki, and vodka was an effective prophylactic treatment. You may be disappointed to know that this unfortunately has no scientific backing, but hey, it was worth a shot. Oh, those Russians. (laughs) Pun intended. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We have a problem. Vodka will fix it. Sure, right? That fixes all problems, always. (laughs) Always. No. No, it causes a lot more, usually. Yeah, unfortunately. Me and vodka, we don't get along. (laughs) Me neither. Mm. (laughs) The Pripyat Hospital, Medical Sanitary Center number 126, was becoming more and more aware of the seriousness of the situation as it was almost immediately overrun with workers needing medical attention. Soon there were 90 patients admitted, and of those included the men from the Unit 4 control room, Leonid Toptanov, Alexander Akimov, and Anatoly Dyatlov. Although it was generally well-equipped, the hospital was not set up to handle a disastrous radiation accident, and in the beginning, they didn't even know that's what they were dealing with, which is so funny when it's like a city literally formed around a nuclear power plant. Like, that's the entire purpose of that city, is to keep that plant running, and they're just like, we never expected this. Nobody told me this could happen. So what are you talking about? What are this? (laughs) (laughs) Those that had been fighting fires complained of headaches, dry throats, and dizziness. Some of their faces were bright purple and others were absolutely white. And everyone was vomiting. Once the radiation sickness was identified, All of the other patients were sent home, and the clothes and the belongings of the firefighters and workers were removed as everything on them was contaminated. These items were hastily thrown into the basement of the hospital. The clothing, boots, and bedsheets remain in the basement to this day and are still so radioactive that the entrance had to be blocked off so no nosy visitors can get too close to the high levels of radiation. Which is insane. That's clothing, and it's like, you can't go there? Because yeah. it's way too radioactive. Like, don't even, don't even look at it. Get away. Yeah. Like, your eyeballs will fall out. Oh, my God. Scary. The second to die from the Chernobyl accident was Vladimir Shashanok. He had been monitoring the turbine test from the flow meter room when the explosion happened. 
his unconscious body was found pinned under a fallen beam with bloody foam coming from his mouth. He had deep thermal and radiation burns, broken ribs, and a broken spine. His colleagues managed to remove him from the wreckage and get him to the hospital. However, the damage was far too severe and he passed away. Before succumbing to his injuries, he tried to instruct the hospital staff to stay away from him as he came from the reactor compartment and was highly contaminated. Oh, like his last, last thing he tried to do was, was like, like, please get don't away kill from yourself me. for me. Yes. Don't kill yourself for me. Get away from me. Just leave me be. It's too late. Ugh, my yeah. heart. Mm-hmm. As more and more patients were arriving and the current patients were deteriorating, emergency airlifts were ordered so the critically injured could be treated in Moscow. Meanwhile, the five schools around the city were told to carry on as usual. There was nothing to worry about. Ironically, there had been a health run scheduled for the kids the next day because children running in a minefield of radioactive fallout is just the epitome of health. (laughs) I can't. Oh, it makes me so mad. Yeah, it's just it's just gonna keep continuing like this until yeah. the very end. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna say it never really gets better. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's the tiny humans. That's what I, I get know. fired up it, over. Yes, absolutely. That is fair because yeah. normally people are concerned about the health of tiny humans, but not in right? this case, apparently. Right? Oh, it's awful. Poor babies. Those that were finding out how truly horrible of a disaster this was tried to get their families to pack their belongings and leave the city. The KGB was, of course, monitoring all phone calls, so some tried to use code to alert others. Anyone that attempted to leave, however, was turned around by armed officers. No one was allowed to leave the city unless they were given official clearance, which is so wrong backwards it's so backwards like Like, you should be getting everybody out you should be able to let them leave yeah but no we're just gonna keep them underneath that radioactive cloud and just see what happens right exactly (laughs) like because we don't want to let anyone know that something actually went really really wrong right exactly that's the entire point behind all this is nobody can know it's a secret We done fucked up, but don't tell anybody. Right. (laughs) (sighs) Including the people that it's directly affecting. There weren't just officers blocking the exit. They were seen all over the city. Civil defense tanker trucks were also in the streets, spraying a white foam. This was a disorbent solution designed to absorb and contain radionuclides that were on the ground. With all the patients in the hospital showing symptoms of radiation sickness, the director made the decision that they needed to distribute stable iodine tablets to everyone in Pripyat. This is a prophylactic that works against iodine-131, the radioisotope that is particularly dangerous to children. Of course, they did not have enough in the hospital to treat the entire town, so they had to bring more in from neighboring districts, though it had to be done in secrecy so no one from the outside would find out what kind of mess they were in. Overnight, they would receive 23,000 doses of potassium iodide, and they began making arrangements to have the medication handed out door to door. Because nothing says suspicious like, don't mind the military presence or the white foam coating the streets. Oh yeah, and here, take this pill. But don't be an alarmist. Everything is fine. (laughs) Like, for real. I think that was like how it was in the USSR. It's like, oh, military's here. You Something's don't, going on, but we 
but we're not asking questions. You just don't ask questions. You just do as you're told. So, so yeah. cause that's how you disappear, right? Exactly. Like, right. I'm just going to do what I'm told and carry and it will on be with fine. my day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Another area that raised red flags for the people of Pripyat were their radios. Every home in the Soviet Union had hardwired speaker boxes that would play propaganda throughout the day. It was even considered to be suspicious if anyone turned off their radios, so when all of a sudden they fell silent and the phone lines were dead, people knew something unusual was happening. Which I just thought was a great, another great detail about the Soviet Union. <laughs> I know, like, just to the fact that those radios played all the time, and, and you, if you turned them off... People were like, watching. You were... People are watching, they know that. Like, I'm the type of person that's like, I can't sleep with noise in the background. So mm-hmm. I'm going to turn the radio off. Right. Or I'm going to stay up all night listening to it. Yes. But now I'm a, you know, conspiracy but, theorist or something. Right. KGB is going to take me out. You're plotting against <laughs> us. <laughs> You're not conforming. I just want to sleep, man. I just <laughs> want to sleep. Oh, I feel that. <laughs> Fortunately, at this point, an evacuation order was finally being considered, with reports of radiation rising, followed accumulating on the ground, and reports from hospital number 126, Sharina decided that the evacuations should begin that afternoon. But before giving the final order, he wanted to see reactor number four himself. So accompanied by Lagazov, they boarded an MI-8 helicopter in order to get an aerial view of the destruction. Flying over the power plant in the light of day proved that there was absolutely no doubt that the reactor had been destroyed and there would be no possible way to make it operate again. The roof and the upper walls of the reactor hall were gone and the 1,000 ton lid of the reactor had been thrown aside. Lagozov could see blocks of graphite and large pieces of fuel assemblies all over the roof and on the ground below. There was also still something burning deep inside the ruins. He knew for sure now that this accident would not just affect Pripyat or even the USSR, but the entire globe. And he was responsible for containing it. Which just makes me think, next time when life gets rough, just remember at least this wasn't your job. Right? At least you weren't put in charge of making it so the world wasn't completely raided. Absolutely. Like, yeah, my job gets stressful sometimes, but... The entire world is not going to be affected by my decisions. <laughs> you, need, you need one of those like motivational posters, you know, with like somebody fishing on it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and life gets tough. Just be happy you're not Legasov. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just Legasov looking at the Chernobyl plant like, God damn it. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> I can make that happen. I can make that poster a reality. <laughs> I feel like this needs to happen and it needs to be at least your podcast room. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So finally, the moment we've all been waiting for at 10 a.m. on Sunday, April 27th, 32 hours after the explosion, Boris Trevino gave the official order to evacuate the city. At 1.10, the radios in all the homes across Pripyat finally began playing again. It was a woman's voice reading the announcement. Quote, attention, attention, dear comrades, the city council of people's deputies would like to inform you that due to an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the city of Pripyat, adverse radiation conditions are developing. Necessary measures are being taken by the party and the Soviet organizations 
and the armed forces. However, in order to ensure complete safety for the people, and most importantly, the children, conducting a temporary evacuation of city residents to nearby localities in the Kiev region has become necessary. We ask that you remain calm, be organized, and maintain order during this temporary evacuation. End quote. How <laughs> creepy would that have been? Like, your radios that are play all the time have been silent for now almost three days. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, attention, this thing happened. Pack your shit and get out. Yeah. Just remain but it'll calm. Be fine. Don't worry. This is for your safety. Your safety is in mind. And it's like, well, I don't know if it is though, because it's been three days. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. It's been three days and you were silent before this. Right. But yes, you definitely yeah. clearly yeah. care about the children. Totally. That's why you're doing this, right? It's for the kids. Mm -hmm. The message intentionally led people to believe that they would be gone for only a short amount of time. And they were told to only pack important documents and enough food and clothes for two or three days. They should also close their windows and shut off their gas and electricity. But don't worry, municipal workers would stay behind to maintain the city's utilities and infrastructure, and their homes would be guarded by police while they were away. Not exactly. I don't think that happened. <laughs> Not really. No, I don't think so. Buses were being arranged for transportation, but until they arrived, everyone was to remain inside their homes. In all, there were 51,300 men, women, and children in the city. Of those, 400 workers were expected to stay behind and take care of the essential services in the city and to continue working in the power plant. In order to move such a huge number of people, they needed over a thousand buses, two river vessels, and three diesel trains. Like, I can't even imagine. Man, brings new, uh, a different perspective to the term essential services. Absolutely. I thought that as well. <laughs> I was like, well, we're living in a world where essential services are the ones that have to keep going, right? And yeah, but we're not being radiated, at least, I guess. That's true. <laughs> I mean, if there's, a, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, it's that we're not being radiated that we yeah. know, know of, anyways. <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> All I could think of are essential services, like liquor stores would be considered essential, apparently. But then I'm like, oh, I feel like in Russia, they would also consider liquor stores essential. So it's, it's the same. Vodka is important. Yes. It's important. <laughs> Protect against the radiation. You got to drink the vodka. Right. Now, does it work against COVID? <laughs> Sorry. I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's tried it. Let's be honest. I mean, <laughs> where was I? <laughs> Let's see. So where do you get a thousand buses in such short notice? That's a great question. You take over all the city buses in Kiev and the surrounding areas and order the drivers to travel towards Pripyat with police escorts, of course. Yeah. This all had to be done in secrecy again, though, because remember, no one can find out what happened. So there were many angry people waiting at their bus stops the next day with no ride. <laughs> I, I think that's a hilarious image to think about. Just people pissed, just like, fucking bus is late, and now I'm late for work, and right? is it never going to show up? Where's just, all the buses? Can you just imagine, like, in a country's capital at a bus terminal where there's usually like hundreds of buses and there's just none. And people are just like, what the actual hell is happening? Like I'm pissed. 
where could they have all gone? Like, really? And how do you sneak that many buses <laughs> out of the city like, without being suspicious? I feel like, like I really need to know. A couple people may have noticed, just saying. Like, something's happening. Again, we're not going to ask any questions because yeah. we don't want to get shot something something's happening and i'm gonna guess it's happening that way <laughs> where all the buses don't are going. follow those buses yeah oh all those buses thousands of buses are heading that way i'm gonna i think i'm gonna go that way the other way i'm gonna go the opposite direction that sounds like a good plan yep unless you're like super nosy and you're like well i kind of want to see what's happening <laughs> must oh, be good man. Yeah, our fatal flaws were right there. We'd be like, Just, hmm, let's get on one of those buses. That curiosity. Curiosity yeah. kills a cat. Yeah. <sighs> the evacuation went very smoothly. Everyone packed up their bare essentials and waited patiently. No one was panicking, even though they were surrounded by so much mystery and uncertainty. What happened? Where were they going? How long would they be gone for? Nobody knew, but they were taking it pretty well. <laughs> In the end, it took a total of 1,225 buses to evacuate the city. On their way to their new destinations, it was realized that the vehicles would be heavily contaminated from driving through the city, so they all had to turn around for a decontamination. In only a few hours, <laughs> it's like, that's an oversight. I feel like it'd be like, yeah, obviously, they're driving oh, through yeah. radioactive material, like, they're going to be contaminated, just saying. In only a few hours, this bustling city was abandoned, with only some workers and family pets that had to be left behind. The streets were quiet, other than the thumping of the helicopters over the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. So these helicopters were part of Lagozov's and Trebina's plan to stifle the possibility of a new chain reaction and to extinguish the fires that were still burning inside the reactor. If left alone, the fire would likely continue to burn for about two months and would spread contamination across the world for years. It was eventually decided to use a concoction of clay, lead, and dolomite to dump inside Unit 4, though none of these materials could be found around the plant and some were in short supply across the USSR. Until the substances could be sourced, the boron that finally arrived was used as a first attempt to cease the reaction, and initially it seemed to be working. They also decided to dredge the river and use the sand as an attempt to smother the ruins. In doing so, they came across farm workers that had remained in the area despite the evacuation orders, so they ended up recruiting them to help. Eventually, there were 100 to 150 men and women filling sandbags for the mission. Dropping the sand and the boron by helicopter would not be an easy or safe task, however. There was no bomb sites or target mechanisms, so the drop had to be done by eye to estimate the trajectory. The intense heat also made it impossible to hover, and they were being blasted with clouds of toxic gas and waves of radiation. Yet, they returned to do it over and over again. Eventually, they brought in 14,000 parachutes as they could carry about one and a half tons of materials without breaking. So this would be a much more efficient way of dropping absorbance over the reactor. Still, it was an immense amount of work. The labor-intensive days would stretch on for more than 16 hours and included hundreds of helicopter trips, which delivered thousands of tons of materials. Throughout all of this, the men didn't have any protective equipment to wear, and the radioactive dust filled their eyes and mouths. They were supposed to have an exposure limit of 22 rem, but many underreported their readings in order to continue to fly. And another part of the helicopters, one of the helicopters actually crashed, 
which I'm not sure if you've ever seen video of, but it, I watched the video of this helicopter crash. So it was flying over the reactor and the blades hit uh, one of a, a cord or something above the plant and mm -hmm. it went crashing down. And that video is on YouTube. You can go watch it and it just makes your heart sink. Like it's chilling. It's awful. Absolutely. So I think some report that, you know, it was from the radiation that the helicopter crashed, but it was actually the blades had hit some type of cords above, but it yeah. was horrible there. I think there was five people aboard that, that died. Just diving into an open <clears throat> radioactive canister, basically. Yeah. Essentially. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's not ideal. So even though the USSR tried their best to keep the situation under wraps, the rest of the world was about to find out their little secret. A cloud of radiation had been dispersing over thousands of kilometers and eventually reached Scandinavia. Automatic monitoring devices in Denmark and Finland started picking up readings of increased radiation. Later on in the night, when the clouds formed over Sweden, they released radioactive rain over a city two hours north of Stockholm. Ugh. Nightmare. See, that's, this is why it gives me nightmares. Because I know. Like, when does it stop? Exactly. And it's like, yeah, something bad may not happen near us, but that doesn't mean it can affect us, right? Exactly. I know. <laughs> Nearby at the Forsmark nuclear power station, they thought their equipment was malfunctioning because it was reading such high levels of radiation. But they continued with further testing and found alarming results. The contamination in the area could, could have only come from nuclear fuel that had been exposed to the atmosphere. Of course, they feared that it was somehow coming from their own plant, but once they began receiving reports from other research facilities hundreds of kilometers away, it was determined that it had to have originated from somewhere outside of Sweden. The country's foreign ministry approached the governments of East Germany, Poland, and the USSR to ask if there had been any nuclear accidents in their territories, and the USSR had the audacity to assure them that they had no information about any incidences taking place. Like they were straight up asked, like we know like, something happened. No, that mm, no wasn't us. That couldn't possibly be from us. No, like no. Don't worry. Like people are we gonna just find have people out. with their faces melting off. But you know, like it but wasn't us. I feel right. like your radiation that you're reading—it's not from us. It must be something else. No. It couldn't possibly be from us, right? Yeah, because it hits. <laughs> the edge of Pripyat and then the radiation stops like it, it wouldn't Absolutely. go further than that there's like laser beams that shoot up from the borders right Stop so it. it knows it knows it can't go any further than that it's so don't fine. even worry it about it it cannot be from us no no not not us <sighs> then when the Kiev Institute of Botany began registering high amounts of radiation the KGB appeared and see and sealed their devices this was of course to avoid panic and the spreading of provocative rumors. Classic KGB. Like, <laughs> KGB just shows up and you're just you're like, oh, all right. Yeah. It's fine. Everything's fine. I just can't we'll just help go about but, our day. I just can't help but giggle every time, like, the KGB comes into this because it's just, you know, something's going on. They're like, yeah, no, we're, we're shutting this down. And it's like, okay, well, now it's yeah. suspicious because the KGB is here. <laughs> we can't say anything. Because they'll shoot us. Exactly. Because they're listening to everything. Which reminds Always. me, <laughs> when, I was, when I was making my script, I was like typing away, you know, all of this like KGB and Soviet Union and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, 
uh, if anybody's used Google Docs, they know that if somebody else is like editing their document, a little green tab will pop up to be like, hey, somebody else is here. And as I'm like typing away, all of a sudden this thing <laughs> pops up, like somebody else is looking at my document and I'm like, hello. <laughs> so then I start messaging Michelle, like, are you creeping on like what I'm writing about? Like, are you in there? Cause you should be the only other person with access to this. She's like, nope, no, it's not me. And I'm like, well, no. it's definitely no. the Russians then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah pissed off the kgb if we disappear you guys know what's happened yeah 100 percent. they're except you'll never know because they'll steal this and well yeah it won't be released damn it <laughs> uh, i it was so funny i was like freaked out and i started writing in my document like hello who are you what do you want but like nobody replied which is probably good thank goodness could you imagine <laughs> i would have no Done. I'd be like, well, we're done. <laughs> yeah, we're done now. We're done here. I'm just going to shut off my computer, throw it into a lake, and I'm going to drive into the mountains. Goodbye. <laughs> yep. And never to be seen again. Yep. Peace out. Off <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Oy, stressful. <laughs> Anyways, when... Gorbachev finally found out what actually had happened. He wanted to make a statement as soon as possible, which is great. But even though he had good intentions, in the end, the statement that was read on Radio Moscow provided very little information. The statement was as follows. Quote, an accident has taken place at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One of the atomic reactors has been damaged. Measures are being taken to eliminate the consequences of the accident. Aid is being given to those affected. A government commission has been set up end quote. Very like point blank, like just no additional details, just bare minimum. No. Not surprisingly, with this came more pressure to reveal further information about what had happened. So a second announcement was made the following day. This time they admitted that there had been two casualties, the reactor building had been destroyed, and that Pripyat had been evacuated. There was still no acknowledgement about the release of radiation though. Turns out, they would have been much better off just telling the truth right from the beginning because the media all around the world took the story and filled in the blanks to make it as sensational as possible, as they do. The United Press International reported that they spoke to a woman in Kiev who informed them that 80 people were killed in the initial explosion and an additional 2,000 died on the way to hospital. It is believed that the reason this information was so inaccurate is because the reporter's Russian was so poor that he misunderstood the woman completely. So that's Oof. not helpful. Rough. <laughs> but accuracy doesn't always matter in the media. So these are the numbers that started being published all around the world. Eventually, some of the news sources, such as the New York Post, claimed that the death toll was now 15,000 and the bodies were being buried in mass graves in nuclear waste disposal sites. Which is crazy. So when I was first reading the book, I actually sat down and talked with my dad about it because mm -hmm. this was 1986, right? I was in the womb right. uh, when it <laughs> happened. Mm -hmm. um, but my parents have always watched the news. And I was like, so what do you remember mm -hmm. learning about Chernobyl from the news? And my dad was like, honestly, not that much. He's like, I remember that there was like a subtitled speech from mm -hmm. Gorbachev or whatever, but it was just like, yeah, so this thing happened. We're dealing with it. No biggie. It's fine. And it wasn't until like a while later that 
the other news, American mm-hmm. news was being sent to Canada and whatever. And it, it started to blow up and they were like, oh, hmm. Guess something bad. really bad happened in the USSR. Yeah. But he's like, at first he's like, it wasn't didn't even concern. think about yeah. it. They right. Didn't think about it. Oh, that's so interesting. They're just like living their young lives. Like my brother would have been like two, mm-hmm. right? Like playing with their baby, right? Expecting another baby. And they're just like, whatever. Yeah, Life fine. is fine. It's Which, so, it's so crazy. Thankfully, that like they yeah. weren't freaked out and terrified, but I would have been. Yeah especially being pregnant at that time. Like not yeah. that a lot of people knew the effects, but like thinking back on it, it's like, oh boy, that's, that's scary. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> radiation works. It hits the hardest on rapidly dividing cells. And, and those are yeah. like babies in the womb. Absolutely. Yeah. It just blows my mind that it's really not that long ago, but it feels like it I should know. be like, a you know, so long ago that it shouldn't affect anybody that is on the earth right now, but it's definitely not true. Like it was not that long ago. No, no. I just turned 35. Well, so, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Yes. Also still spreading all around the world was of course the radioactive cloud. In Belarus, black rain was falling over their farmland. Yet, all around the USSR, cities were being encouraged to continue on with their May Day celebrations and parades as a way to show the world that there was really nothing to fear. Yeah, black rain. That sounds good. Healthy for you. I feel like Belarus had a really crappy deal here because they were like, because Chernobyl is like basically right on the edge, like on the border. So it's like, sorry, it probably affected like Belarus more than it affected Ukraine just because of their location where where they were located (laughs) totally come on guys this isn't this isn't us what are you doing over there (laughs) conditions at the plant were only getting worse however it was discovered that the mission to smother the reactor with absorbance may result in further disaster with the help of a thermal imaging camera they could now see that each time a load was dropped over the reactor clouds of black radioactive smoke and dust were thrown into the air and taken away with the wind. What was even more concerning was that the temperature inside the reactor suddenly started to increase. They feared that the mix of all the matter was becoming so hot that it was starting to fuse into a mass of radioactive lava. Because that's all we need right now is radioactive lava. It like seriously sounds like we're making it up. I know. Like this this shit happened. I know. And I feel like a broken record. Like, oh yeah. And then it got worse. And then it got worse. And then it got worse. And then they tried this and it seemed to get better, but then it got worse. Right. (laughs) Sorry if that's repetitive, but that is the entire story. (laughs) With the combination of the recent explosions and the 4,600 tons of sand, lead, and dolomite that was dropped from 200 meters, it had significantly compromised the foundation of the reactor. This means that the radioactive lava could burn its way through the concrete and leak into the ground below. This, of course, would contaminate the water supply for everyone in the Ukraine, and it would also flow into the Black Sea. Hold on to your butts, because it just keeps getting worse. (laughs) Before the molten- We warned you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just said it, but here we are again. Before the molten fuel reaches the earth, it would have to go through the flooded safety compartments beneath reactor number four. This would result in a steam explosion even larger than the first, which could destroy the other three reactors in the plant. The result would render most of Europe uninhabitable for hundreds of years. What the actual hell? Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
oh, it blows my mind. In order to prevent this from happening, it was decided that they needed to drill underneath reactor number four and freeze the soil with liquid nitrogen. They also needed to find workers willing to go into the basement directly underneath the reactor and open the valves of the steam suppression pool in order for the highly radioactive water to be pumped out. This would be difficult for a number of reasons. The basement contained a maze of complicated pipework, there were all kinds of corridors and compartments, and it would all have to be navigated while wading through water in the darkness. While all of this was being planned, the helicopter mission continued because doing something was better than doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Before draining the water, they first had to decide where they were going to store the 5,000 cubic meters of the radioactive waste. After two days of deliberation, it was decided that they needed to pump the water into two open air pods that were just outside of Pripyat. This would require one and a half kilometers of hoses that needed to be rolled out by hand. The pumping could begin once the liquid nitrogen arrived, but there had been a delay. The convoy of tanker trucks had stopped 60 kilometers away as they were afraid of the dangerous radiation they would be driving into and refused to go any further. But disobeying orders in the Soviet Union ain't gonna fly. Mm -mm. Soldiers were dispatched to find them and bring them in. Finally, they were able to persuade the drivers into delivering their cargo, with a little encouragement from the machine guns they were carrying. Yeah, how do you say no to that? I, you really, you really can't. Yeah, can't. They're very persuasive devices. Eventually, the supplies arrived and the pumping began. This, of course, didn't go smoothly because literally nothing in the story could go as planned. For starters, a team of chemical troops drove over the hoses, cutting them in 20 places. The workers had to act fast to replace each section, but their protective equipment was slowing them down, so they had to use their bare hands. Also, one of the engines broke down and needed to be replaced, so that caused delays as well. The workers were frightened and they were beginning to show signs of radiation sickness. It took days until enough water was pumped out for the taps in the valve compartment to become accessible. As the basement was so difficult to navigate and all of the valves looked the same, they couldn't just send anyone down there to do the job. Three men from the Chernobyl station with intimate knowledge of the layout were chosen for the job. Boris Baranov, chief shift manager and two engineers, Alexei Anonenko and Valery Bespolov. They would later be known as the suicide squad because the job they were asked to do would almost certainly result in death. But they didn't hesitate. On May 8th, the men were equipped with wetsuits, wrenches, flashlights, and pencil decimeters, and they were sent into the still partially flooded basement. Their lights died instantly, and their dosimeters immediately ran off at scale. They had to move quickly, even though it wouldn't be easy to do so. The men were successful with their mission and were able to find and open the valves, preventing another possible catastrophic explosion. And it was widely reported that these men succumbed to ARS, but miraculously, these reports were false. Against all odds, all three survived and were just recently given recognition for their heroic efforts. In 2018, the Ukraine president awarded them the Order for Courage. Anenenko and Bespolov accepted their awards in person, where Baranov, who died in 2005 of a heart attack, was awarded his posthumously. That's amazing that they didn't die. It's so funny. Like, how? How? I feel like it happens often in this story that people that like in part one, the ones that were looking directly into the reactor core, they survived. And then others that you would think would be fine. They're not directly in, in the zone. 
they don't. It is just, it's so crazy to me. I know. And it's just how radiation works and how it affects everybody's exactly. body different. And that's insane. It that is those insane. three men who were so heroic yeah. that were just like, no questions asked. Yeah. This is our job to do. We're going mm -hmm. underneath. We're probably going to die. Yeah. That's fine. We're going to mm -hmm. save the world. Right. Which and is, they didn't die, which is great. Like I'm so happy that they didn't because their heroic yeah. efforts were rewarded with life. Literally <laughs> like, right. It's insane man, don't tell me that the universe doesn't watch and pay attention. Like, Right? No kidding. Once the suppression pools were emptied, they were pumped with nitrogen and more men were sent into the basement in order to fill them with liquid concrete. This too was later found to be a mistake as the concrete would only trap the heat of the radioactive decay and it would accelerate the meltdown. So they stopped pumping the concrete immediately. Again, doing something looks better than doing nothing. Right? right, exactly. It's all trial and error. It's like, we don't know what is going to help this horrible situation, so we're just going to throw things at it and see what happens. <laughs> God forbid we ask for help from, like, right? other countries. Exactly. But, you know. Meanwhile, the workers were executing the plan to drill underneath the reactor in order to freeze the ground below. Again, they were met with many obstacles. Brain, dust, and highly radioactive debris made it difficult and dangerous to drill. They would also run into massive underground structures that were not shown on the plant's blueprints. And this would not only result in major delays, but it would also break their equipment. So not helpful. Not helpful at all, no. Eventually, the original plan of using liquid nitrogen was abandoned anyways, as it would not be effective enough. So instead, they suggested a new strategy. The only guaranteed solution was an extensive construction project that would involve excavation of a chamber deep beneath the reactor that was 5 meters high and 30 meters square. This would house a massive water-cooled heat exchanger used to chill the earth and to stop molten fuel from going into the soil. In order to begin the project, approximately 400 coal miners were brought in to work underground. In three-hour shifts, they worked in the intense heat, digging by hand and using jackhammers to create the chamber. Next, the engineers moved in to construct the heat exchanger, but welding in a small, poorly ventilated space filled with toxic gas was causing the men to pass out. The temperatures reached 60 degrees Celsius, which led to the workers shedding any type of protective equipment they had to work half naked. By the end of their shifts, they were so exhausted that they would have to be physically pulled out of the tunnel. But the weeks of hard work from hundreds of miners, soldiers, construction workers, Electricians and engineers turned out to be for nothing. The temperatures in the reactor dropped and the threat of the meltdown was over. The heat exchanger was never turned on. Man, the sacrifice mm -hmm. that those miners, what they did was incredible. Absolutely. And they were like, it's too fucking hot, so we're going to do it naked. Yeah, we're going to get it done faster if we can move yeah. and, and you know be able to tolerate the heat, so we're going to take the risk. Right. There's a scene in the, I know, I know we'll talk about the Chernobyl show yes. on our book club episode, but there's a scene in the show where the lead, lead miner, he's mm -hmm. like, is the protective equipment really doing anything for us anyways? Right. And because really what was their protective equipment? Really, it was nothing. Like a rubber suit. Yeah. Like a rubber maybe? suit in 60 degree Celsius conditions. You'd die. Like, no, like you'd you. die of heat exhaustion. Like that's you can't yeah, do it. It would be awful. And so yeah. he's like, it's not saving us anyways. So, so we're gonna get this job done it. faster. Yeah. 100 percent Right? 
Yeah. And it's such a difficult situation because it's not wrong that they did all of that work because if they didn't, then, you know, this just how life works. If you're not prepared for a situation, that's when it's going to happen. So like they had to prepare for that situation. That was the best way to go about it. It just so happened that they didn't need it, which is fine. It's just unfortunate that so many people had to sacrifice themselves for it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It had been decided earlier in the month that the evacuation zone needed to be expanded to a 30 kilometer radius around the plant. But these evacuations were not going as smoothly as the first ones. With 100,000 people relocated, approximately five to 6,000 of those people had been lost. Their whereabouts were completely unknown. <laughs> Great. Which, I don't, it's almost humorous <laughs> just because of the situation. But like, like how do you how lose, do you lose people? 6,000 people. <laughs> 6,000 people. How do you lose them? I, I don't know. But they managed. Especially for a country that like keeps tabs on everybody. Everybody. It's just ironic that they would lose 6,000 people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, man. Well, the KGB was obviously just busy dealing with Chernobyl that they missed, you know. Right. Exactly. Something. Yes. Something big. Apparently. KGB, you dropped the ball. <laughs> the one time we needed you. <laughs> 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 don't come at us Just, i'm kidding haha <laughs> <laughs> jokes <laughs> about 1800 people including 445 children were now hospitalized and people were starting to panic many tried to flee the city of kiev even quitting their jobs and taking all of their money out of the bank pharmacies quickly ran out of stable iodine and people resorted to drinking iodine instead which of course Ooh. is meant for external use only so all this did was burn their throats sounds horrible awful speaking of drinking liquor stores were being swarmed as people were trying to get their hands on vodka and red wine to prevent radiation sickness well red wine we should be fine right Hey, there you go. We've definitely drank <laughs> enough red wine to protect us Should from radiation. We are so set. Why have I been concerned? <laughs> Science, right? Science. Science is always on our side. The Ukraine Deputy Ministry of Health even had to make an announcement saying there was that there was no truth to the rumor that alcohol is useful against radiation. I thought that was funny. Like, please stop. Like, you're overwhelming the liquor salesman. <laughs> Save some of the vodka for us. Yes. <laughs> uh, I feel like it's very similar to like the toilet paper situation in COVID. Like once people start to know that it's like the supply is running out, then everybody swarms in to buy what's left. So then it just like- I was totally going to say like this sounds like way yeah. too relevant. Yeah, exactly. But it's just with vodka, which- But people like yeah. during the initial waves of the pandemic, people were buying out the liquor store too. That's true. That is true. So. It's like, I got to be in my house for how long? <laughs> With my I need our drink. Exactly. <laughs> Which is fair. That is fair. Yeah. <clears throat> um, also, something interesting I wanted to point out because I just, right before recording, I was watching a doctor from Chernobyl uh, talk about the HBO series and like what was true and what was false and all of that. And she was speaking about the um, stable iodine tablets. And she said it wasn't actually until 10 days after the incident where people had, had access to all of those pills. And it only is effective if the iodine is taken 
I think it was 10 to 18 hours after an incident, like it has to be within that window for it to be effective. So even though they tried to disperse all of this medication and everybody was flooding to the pharmacies to get their hands on it, it would have done nothing. It was far too late. That's awful. Yeah. It's awful to think about because they're like, we're saving ourselves. I'm going to give these to our kids because right. we got to protect the kids. And and that, done nothing. It also brings up another good point. She said that people didn't know the dose to give. So they would, they're just feeding it to their kids and it was causing like horrible ulcers in their stomachs. Oh yeah. Babies. Isn't that terrible? Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm so good at bringing people down. You are man. <laughs> Want to know some terrible upsetting facts? I got you. I will blow your mind. Yeah. With sadness. (laughs) Oh man. So it wouldn't take long for people's situations to become dire as they were scattered all across Ukraine and were quickly running out of food and money. Unknown to them, many of the clothes and possessions they did have on them were contaminated as well. Of course. So that just makes things worse. Those that had family members hospitalized didn't know where they had been taken and it would be difficult to track them down. Many of the patients, including the first to be airlifted to Moscow, had ended up at hospital number six. It had a 600-bed facility that was reserved for treatment of the nuclear workers and had two floors dedicated to radiation medicine. Also, I love that the hospitals are, like, numbered. Like, it just is so Soviet. Like, it's just like, yeah, no, this is hospital number six because this is the sixth hospital that we have built. It does not get fancy name. It is hospital six. (laughs) Hospital number six. Yes. No confusion. Mm -mm. Nope. We don't need to be fancy here. This is what it is. (laughs) Nuclear workers go to hospital number six. That's it. Exactly. The head of the clinic department was 62-year-old Dr. Angelina Guskova, an absolute badass. Yeah, she is. I love this lady. (laughs) Fantastic. She had been working in radiation medicine for more than three decades. She worked with patients from the Mayak disaster and was even the personal physician to Igor Kurchatov, who was known as the father of the Soviet atomic bomb. At the age of 33, she was appointed to the new radiation medicine clinic being established in the Institute of Biophysics in Moscow. Ten years into her career, she had treated more than a thousand victims of severe radiation exposure and likely knew more about the subject than any other physician in the world. Like we said, she's a badass. Although many people didn't know hospital number six is where their family members were, if you were to pass by the building, it would be pretty apparent that it was housing those affected by the Chernobyl accident. It was being heavily guarded and technicians with radiation monitoring equipment were checking everyone that was entering and leaving the building. This is where the men of control room number four had been taken, and in the beginning, it seemed like they were making great improvements. Dyatlov, Akimov, and Toptonov were quickly reporting that they were no longer feeling the effects of radiation sickness anymore. Unfortunately, though, the effects of ARS are cruel and complex. Many with severe exposure will begin to feel better, the vomiting will stop, the discoloration of the skin and the burns will begin to fade within 18 hours. This latency period can last for days or even weeks, but then further symptoms will begin and their conditions will deteriorate. The symptoms of the Chernobyl patients differed, however, because workers were exposed to radiation in a variety of different ways and were exposed to different kinds of radiation. In part one, we briefly discussed the different types of radiation and how they affected the body, and this is where that information comes into play. 
the firefighters that worked on the roof had breathed in alpha and beta emitting smoke and then were hit with gamma rays from the fuel and the core fragments surrounding them. The doses of radiation depended on exactly where they were standing. Even a few feet made a difference of life and death. Mm -hmm. The operators that tried to contain the damage from inside Unit 4 had been drenched with radioactive steam, which was heavy in beta-emitting particles. Some breathed in radioactive gases that seared the soft tissue in their mouths and airways. Not knowing each patient's exact exposure made it difficult to treat them effectively. Akimov and Toptonov experienced severe burns on their feet as they had waded into radioactive water in the attempt to cool the reactor. They had worn those same coveralls for more than 24 hours before they were removed at hospital number six. The conditions of their legs made it appear as though they were dipped into something corrosive. Gives Yo-chi. me the willies. I know. By the time the outward symptoms of ARS appeared, such as swelling, skin burns and necrosis, bloody diarrhea, hemorrhaging, bone marrow decimation, and corrosion of airways and digestive systems, it would be too late to intervene. Treatments were limited, but included blood transfusions, antibiotics to treat infections, and in worst cases, bone marrow transplants. This was a risky procedure, however, and could cause further complications and side effects. But hematologist and bone marrow transplant specialist from the UCLA, Dr. Robert Gale, was eventually brought in to help. Still, there was only so much he could do for some patients. Before a transplant could be done, they needed to do a tissue typing analysis but those most acutely exposed didn't have enough white blood cells to complete the preliminary testing, so they couldn't be matched with the donor. It's awful. Mm -hmm. Awful. Yeah. Here's a quote from the book Midnight in Chernobyl that is explaining the procedure as a mother of one of the patients is having her bone marrow collected for a transfusion. Trigger warning for anybody that doesn't like needles. I don't mind needles, but even this is, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Quote, After administering a general anesthetic, doctors made two incisions in her buttocks and used heavy-duty six-inch-long needles to puncture her hip bones and draw out the marrow, a teaspoon at a time. It took around 90 minutes to make the 200 insertions necessary to fill a beaker with a quart of reddish-pink fluid. Technicians strained this to remove pieces of fat and bone, processed it in a centrifuge, placed it in a bag, and transfused it into a vein in her son's arm. Then the wait began for the marrow cells to reach the cavities in his bones and begin manufacturing healthy new blood cells, end quote. Yuck. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm glad there was general anesthetic, but I can't imagine that would feel good when you woke up to have 200 punctures. So painful. Into your hip bone. Like, oh man. Yowch. And like, I've done so many gross things in my career. Yeah. And that grosses me out because it's people. Right? <laughs> I know. It's so different. Anything people related is just like, ooh, ooh, sick. <laughs> ooh, no, thank you. Right? <laughs> Mad respect for the people, doctors of the world and nurses. Absolutely. I can't do it. Yeah. But he, I've also had providers. Thank you. Thank you for yep, doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've also had nurses look at me and tell me that they couldn't do my job. So, yeah, 100%. Yours. You know, balance. Yeah. It's all about balance. Yeah. <laughs> Of those that received bone marrow transplants included Akimov and Toptonov, but unfortunately they succumbed to the ARS before the treatment could take effect. They were amongst the 20 now dead from the Chernobyl accident. Still, many more workers would be sent into the contaminated area as the cleanup was nowhere near finished. 
the cleanup crews would be known as the liquidators, which means to eliminate. The area immediately surrounding the plant was called the special zone, and it was now up to military engineers, civil defense, and chemical warfare troops to decontaminate the area. One of the difficult aspects of cleanup is that radionuclides cannot be broken down or destroyed. They can only be relocated to an isolated area where the long process of radioactive decay may be less threatening to its surroundings. Basically, you can't get rid of it. You just have you to hide it. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> like, just cover it up. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah. As this nuclear disaster was so severe, there were no formal protocols in place prior to its occurrence, so experts had to decide on a limit for how much radiation each person could be exposed to. There was a debate between 25 to 50 rem that went on for quite some time. Once the decision of 25 rem was made, it had been three weeks and many men had already been dangerously overexposed. Even after all of that, the limit was hard to monitor and even when it was, the readings were deliberately disregarded. There was also a shortage of dosimeters, so a platoon of 30 soldiers had to share one monitoring device. That meant that one person would wear it and whatever that reading was, it was given to everyone else in the group, regardless of where they had been or what type of work they were doing. That's not how that works, but no. you know, okay, whatever. Like we literally just were saying a couple of feet could make the difference of life or yeah. death, but you know, 30 people can share one dosimeter. That totally makes sense. Absolutely. Massive combat engineering vehicles lined with lead and designed for the use following a nuclear attack or to advance through minefields were first sent in to remove the heavy radioactive material from around the plant. One of the first trucks to enter the site got stuck amongst the wreckage as the driver was unable to see through the narrow viewing slots. His radio stopped working and being stuck in a highly radioactive zone, it was crucial for him to move as fast as possible. In order for the driver to receive directions to get out of the wreckage, a colonel had to drive over to him and open the hatch on his vehicle so they could communicate. The driver was able to get out safely, but the colonel later had to be hospitalized for radiation sickness. It quickly became apparent that no equipment could last long in the special zone. After the combat engineering vehicles had failed, remote-controlled bulldozers were brought in to clear the radioactive rubble and soil from around the plant in order to avoid putting any humans at risk of entering the area. It was so dangerous that men could only work for a few seconds before reaching their, their radiation limits, so this would be a safer option as they could operate the machines from a less contaminated area. In theory, a good idea, but this specialized equipment failed quickly, and it was impossible to get them running again as the high levels of radiation destroyed their electronics. So brutal. Oh, so brutal. Mm -hmm. So even though it was incredibly dangerous, the work still needed to be done for the greater good. So it was decided to use bio-robots instead. Any guesses as to what bio-robots are? Human beings! <laughs> This makes me so upset. That's right. The liquidators were now being sent in to clean up by hand as they were the only mechanisms capable of functioning in the extreme conditions. Like what a way to dehumanize the situation. Like the people that are risking their lives, they're calling them bio robots. Like uh, it just, it bothers me. It really and bothers me. <laughs> they're like, you're completely expendable. Absolutely. You are just a machine here to do a job and that's it. But I mean, if they didn't do it and if they didn't use right humans to do the job and the humans in the Soviet mm -hmm. Union 
weren't sacrificed yes. to do that job, where would we be today? Right. hundred percent. And I these think sacrifices were made by these people, but I think it could really only be accomplished in the USSR because totally. they were given an order and they were like, okay, there was no questions asked. They would There's just no questions asked. They're just like, this is what we got to do. Yes. Yeah. I think that was one of the most surprising things about deep diving into Chernobyl was the amount of people that obviously sacrifice themselves that you just don't hear about. Like when I think of yeah. Chernobyl, I think of like deserted abandoned place, but there was like all of these people that came in to help, you know, and didn't like say otherwise, like they just did their job. Right. But I just remember the first time hearing the word bio robots. And I was just like, it just shook me. I was like, wow, like yeah. these people that went in and risked their lives and they should be acknowledged. Like they got I feel like they got no recognition. No, they didn't. It's, it's because, not a big, like I said, they were completely expendable. Exactly. So I don't know. I just feel like when you talk about the topic of Chernobyl, it shouldn't be some abandoned place with no people. It should be the heroes that came in and exactly. literally saved the world. <laughs> like they saved the world. Oh my God. <laughs> of course, they weren't well equipped either as many were only wearing their regular uniforms and a cotton pedal respirator. They worked hard in short shifts to remove the topsoil around the reactor and placed it in metal containers for transport and burial in a waste storage vault. Another detachment was working on the ground near Reactor 3, clearing chunks of a reactor graphite laying on the ground, again, by hand. The liquidators were exposed to their maximum allowed annual doses of radiation in a matter of seconds. Even though the men were supposed to have a limit of 25 rem and then were to be sent away from the zone never to return, some commanders decided it was better to continually expose the men who have already been burned rather than burning fresh new troops. And how do you make a decision? Right. Exactly. Right? These people are probably going to die. So mm -hmm. can continue to work them until they drop dead. Right. Or, or I could bring new healthy people. Right. are going to probably Get die. sick right like it's a very it's really difficult like it's uh yeah you know that uh the trolley scenario of you know you have to decide to change yeah. the mm -hmm. path to you know save one person or you'll totally i feel like it's a very like moral debate like you could have with totally that situation. And, <laughs> and who's to say that that decision was wrong right right i don't know it's, it's tough i don't know what to say i don't know even though they were now recycling their bio-robots, they still needed a lot more manpower. Keep in mind that at the end of May, there were over 10,000 men that had been working inside the contaminated area. The councils of ministers of the USSR called in hundreds of thousands more military reserves for a mobilization of up to six months. They had been told that they were required for special military exercises, but of course, they were being sent to Chernobyl without being told prior to their arrival. Thousands of these troops set up camp around the perimeter of the exclusion zone and would travel inside each day to continue their assignment. Radiation surveys being conducted revealed that contamination had spread far across Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. It not only affected cities, but also a great amount of farmland. This meant that the radiation not only threatened the population with external exposure, but also internal, as it had poisoned the food chain through the soil, crops, and farm animals. Wind and weather would also complicate the issue as it would constantly redistribute radioactive dust to areas that had already been decontaminated. 
the Soviet agriculture ministry also began to fear that the animals left behind, including cats and dogs, would become a threat. Not only were they capable of spreading disease, but they would also carry radioactive dust in their fur and therefore be toxic to anyone they came in contact with. The solution to this problem is not a pretty one. Yeah, huge trigger warning right here. Absolutely. It's, it's rough. It's not fun. 20 teams of 12 men were brought in from the Society of Hunters and Fishermen in order to liquidate all of the abandoned pets that they could find. The animals were then loaded into dump trucks and buried in deep pits. They eliminated 20,000 livestock and companion animals inside the 30-kilometer zone, though it was not possible to kill them all. Some dogs managed to find safety outside of the zone, and some were even being cared for by the liquidators in the camps, regardless of the risks. Ugh, it just breaks my heart. Ugh, it's horrible. I don't have words. The tiny humans make me angry, but this part of the story, I literally cried while reading the book. Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, you know, I'm a big softie. But, <laughs> and upset for the animals, but also upset for the people that had to do that job. Had to do it. Because, like, as a hunter and a, lovers. Yes, as a hunter and a fisherman, like, a lot of people may think otherwise, but like, we care for animals so deeply. And yeah. We do it for very certain reasons, like ethical reasons. We want to do it ethically (laughs) as much as possible. And so just to go around and like decimate all of the animals in the area, that's never like the intention. It's all about like conservation and everything like that. So it just goes against everything you ever. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's 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 hard to explain, but like, (laughs) man, that would be so tough. I feel for them. Yeah. I couldn't do it. (laughs) I (laughs) promise you I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Also, as part of the liquidation, whole villages were demolished and buried as it wasn't possible to keep the buildings decontaminated. The water, soil, and forests contained radioactive fallout as well, and even though a massive effort was made to remove the radionuclides from the area, it just simply wasn't possible. In the end, only 10 square kilometers were ever truly decontaminated. In order to prevent further contamination of the environment, it was apparent that they needed to find a way to permanently isolate the remains of reactor number four. They also wanted to conceal it so they could keep the other three reactors operational. And this was more so for the Soviet Union's image rather than the actual need for its power supply. No surprises there, really, at this point. (laughs) It was decided that a tomb was to be constructed around the unit, Those sent in to do the job would no doubt be working in one of the worst environments ever known to mankind, and it was almost guaranteed that there would be deaths, but it needed to be done. The huge container would be built to last at least 100 years and would encapsulate the entire accident site. This building would be known as the sarcophagus. One of my favorite words now, by the way. Absolutely. Sarcophagus. So fitting. (laughs) The citizens of Pripyat and the surrounding areas still remained hopeful that they would be able to return to their home one day, not knowing the destruction that had occurred to the buildings, land, plants, and animals that were inside the exclusion zone. Meanwhile, the government commission had already come to the realization that the amount of manpower and money it would take to clean the city to make it habitable again was unimaginable and simply not possible. No one would be returning to live in the city ever again. Whew. That is where I'm ending part two. 
It wow. was not. <laughs> oh boy. So thoughts. <laughs> I just, every time we talk about it, I just can't help but be overwhelmed by the immensity of it. Yes. The immensity of the human sacrifice, the immensity of the damage, mm -hmm. the immensity of the secrets. Like there's just so much. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know if they were honest about it from the get go and they evacuated right away, right. would things have been different? Maybe, but they still yeah. would have needed that human sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And they still would have had to do all of these same things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and like, we, we talk a lot of shit, but obviously hindsight is 2020. We're like given all this information of like, this is why this was a bad decision because you know, this, this, and this, but obviously like we don't know any different and they didn't know any different at the time. They were just doing what they thought was the best solution with the information yeah. they had had at their disposal. So really like, yes, the evacuations absolutely should have been done prior and like, you know right sending the workers down to cool the reactor when it wasn't existent like that was wrong like absolutely but all really all the other steps that they took or the the decisions that they made in that sense like the cleanup like mm -hmm. what were they supposed to do in a lot of those situations like they just like had when to, your machines won't work yeah you just gotta do what's gonna work and, and when, save the planet <laughs> When the physicists say, yeah, that explosion is going to happen in three hours. So, uh, figure it out, like figure it out. You got to make some decisions and you don't always have the time to make the right ones because exactly the time is ticking and you gotta, you gotta do something. So yeah. you can be very critical, but obviously like we're looking back on the situation with a lot more knowledge, information and research than what they had at the yeah. time. <laughs> so totally. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh boy. Immensity. That's my word for this oh. whole episode is just immensity. Yes. And this, yeah, it really, it takes a lot to like put all this together and like into words because you have to be in the right mindset to be like, okay, let's dive in. Let's, you know, figure totally. this out and put it together. Cause it's not a case that you can just like listen to here and there and pick up things. It's like, no, I need to like focus and I need to go down this rabbit hole. Like and do the science, do and, the science, yeah. figure it out. Like it really, you have to be in a certain mindset. So it was totally, it's, it's been quite difficult, <laughs> but yes, man, it's, it's interesting. I hope everybody else finds it as interesting. As I think I it's fascinating and terrifying yeah. all at the same oh, time. Yeah. So, which I don't know, seems to be right up our alley. Is, is it fascinating? Is it terrifying? Cool. <laughs> Tara and Michelle are going to like it. Yeah. We're, we're going to like it. So my sources uh, for this episode, obviously, Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham, uh, Wikipedia, naturally, Science Direct, ChernobylHistory.com, and ChernobylGallery.com were my sources. Oof, well done. Thank you. So, yeah, last time I said, like, part two, we were going to get into, like, the trial and the investigation and all that kind of stuff. Sorry. That's going to be part three. That's going to be part three. But I'm going to have so many, like, fun myths and like urban legends like it's gonna be fun times i promise yeah so excellent i love it come back for part three because i'm looking forward to it awesome but anyways are you ready for some fluff and stuff absolutely i'm ready for I fluff and stuff 
bet you are. <laughs> well, it's kind of, it's getting to be that time of year, that spooky season. So it's spooky season, guys. We I kind of wanted to talk about a spooky, spooky thing. Spooky season. So I wanted to know, okay, what is your favorite scary movie? Ooh, okay. Well, I love scary movies. <laughs> I love them. But my favorite is probably Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. I'm a Freddy Krueger fan. Yeah. Love just it. Just like an OG classic, like yeah, scary classic. movie. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But I recently just rewatched um, the new It part one and part two. Oh, yeah. And shit, phenomenal. So well done. I mm -hmm. They're quite possibly up in my top five. So, nice. yeah. Sorry, I missed that. Was yeah. it the new one or the old one? The new one. The new one. I okay. love, I love yeah. the original because mm -hmm. Tim Curry as Pennywise is fantastic. Right. But what's his face Skarsgård who plays mm -hmm. Pennywise in the new one and the casting that's done in the, in the new one and just yeah. how they portray it all chills. Yeah. So well done. I love nice. it. So that's excellent. Yes. yes. I, what about I yours? First, I'll just comment on, on the movie it, I watched it in Burbank <laughs> is where I saw it for the first time in a really cool movie theater where you like lounge back and everything. So it was a really cool experience, but then we had to like walk all over bank and there's all these really creepy like sewer drains and stuff everywhere no. like oh this is unsettling uh so yeah that's what i think about when i think about it but um anyways my favorite <laughs> one my favorite scary movie i don't know if it can be considered scary movie but it would be silence of the lambs as would be like my my tippy top oh classic love silence I, I think it's creepy i think you could consider it a scary movie but 100 um Let's see. Um, the Descent, like I've only watched it once because it was like really freaky to me, but I thought it was like a really good scary movie because hmm. just, have you watched it? It's like, no, it's, I haven't. It's cave divers that like go into like this deep, scary cave and there's like humanoid creatures down there. And oh like, yeah, you anything? lost me at humanoid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I've probably said this on the podcast before, but anything humanoid, I'm out. Like it, nope terrifies me so that one really really got to me i don't want to think about it yeah. too much but like success yeah. on the scary part in my books absolutely um yeah and then i just have to throw dark water in there which is not like a lot of people watched it but like i watched it a whole bunch growing up which is really weird i really overdid it on scary movies growing up <laughs> but uh it We've talked about Dark Water before because it's a lot like the Elisa Lamb case, but it came totally. out before. Yes. I was like, there was a case yes. we talked about that was like this. Yeah. yeah, but it came out before the Elisa Lamb, you know, right. incident happened. So it's just very eerie. But I, I don't know. I watched that movie many, many times for some reason. But yeah, now I'm too, I'm, I'm too paranoid to watch scary movies a lot of the time now because it just gets in my head. Oh I, yeah. I'm like years ago, like I was the girl that went to go see scary movies yep. in the theater. I was the girl that like laughed through the horror movies. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then I became a mom and I had to like completely take a break <laughs> mm -hmm. from the scary movies. And I'm just at that point where I can like get back get into them back and into like, it. yeah, like just really like appreciate them. Mm -hmm. I still laugh through them. I, because I find I'm a creep, I guess, but I can get through them fine. It's just the aftermath of my brain taking totally. that information and then making it scarier than what it was. And then like 
my brain being like, Hey, have you thought about this? Or like, what if right? standing in your window over there? And I just, I can't, right? I can't do it anymore. <laughs> and I think that's why like my favorites are like nightmare on Elm street. Like Freddie's mm -hmm. not real. You know, right. this, yeah, right. Exactly. Pennywise also not real. You right. know this. Not a big threat. You cannot pay me money to watch paranormal activity. Oh my God. It mm, you cannot. Yeah. yeah. I definitely watched that when it came out and it messed with my brain. Yeah. It's it too came real. Out right as Des and I weren't even married at the time. Mm -hmm. We had just bought our first house. Ooh, and I was like, mm, that young couple ooh. buys a house and it's full of demons. I'm not watching that movie. I don't like that. You can't make me. Mm -mm. don't like no. it it's too real i can't right yeah uh the movie that scarred me for my entire life is signs like oh yeah oh my god i just i can't like i oh my god like even thinking about it i'm like looking over my shoulder because it scares me so bad like <laughs> i feel like i've also talked about signs on the show before but like i think it, so i think we've talked it about it really got to me i'm like like yeah my granny bought it for me when it came out and it was like tiny child and i'm like yeah because it was my jam like I rented all of the like alien books from like the library and like yep. watched all the shows at the time. And I'm mm -hmm. like, yep, I, I don't know. I was really interested in it, but too real, man. It just, that one got to you. Hey, it got to me. I think why they made me watch it last year. And I almost died. Like I almost had a panic attack when he turned well, it on and I was like, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> I haven't ever rewatched the movie that scarred me for life as a child. So mm -hmm. yeah, you know, Yep. And it's also about an alien. Is it E.T.? It's totally E.T. I can't do it, man. <laughs> it makes you breathe into a paper bag. It's I think terrifying. about like, there's just the one scene of like the shed that has the light on in E.T. And oh. just something about that really freaks me out. And it just, it was when he was hiding in the closet in yep. the teddy bears. Yep. That's where I kept my toys and my teddy bears. And I watched as a kid and I, I had to make people check my closet. And I was like, Ooh, nope. yeah no I can't nope mm -mm. that's a movie I've not, not okay. watched in a long time and I probably won't because again aliens no, it's scary <laughs> it is give me Freddy Krueger right. any goddamn day no give me true crime <laughs> things that have literally happened to people and I'm like okay this is fine I can go to sleep to this and then it's this like fine fictional shit and I'm e. like E.T damn mm -mm. no mm -mm. Mm -mm. don't like it because <laughs> that is so rational <laughs> totally rational yeah well uh, yeah yeah so make sure to answer our question as well mm -hmm. also obviously let us know what you think about the episode do you have thoughts comments about chernobyl we want to know you can email us at murderedmerlo at gmail.com find us on instagram at murder merlo podcast Facebook at Murder Merlot Podcast and Twitter at Murder Merlot One. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. And so <laughs> we we promised mm. at the beginning of the episode that we had this like big announcement. Uh -huh. Um and usually at the end of our episodes, we announce a big book right. that's coming out. But I don't know how. Do we have a book, Tara? We don't have a book. At least we not don't. like true crime books, because we'll be reading a lot of baby books. Yeah, definitely. Like what to expect when you're expecting and mm -hmm. babies' first years, and right? Baby names and 
All that good stuff. All that good stuff. Cause Tara and I are both knocked up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, pretty close to the end. Yeah. Yep. Pretty far along. Uh, we yep. are actually two weeks apart in our due dates, which is quite fun. It's amazing. We didn't, pl we didn't plan it this way. It just no. happened. And it's like this, like, it's not some weird universal like, thing commune cult like hey let's plan this together <laughs> and start our own community but right? that's what's happening we're we're yeah. putting two little merlotters into the world yes and it's exciting so yeah that's our huge announcement we will be taking a hiatus from recording mm -hmm. um tara is due middle of november ish yep. and i'm due beginning of december so we are taking a minimum of three months off. Mm -hmm. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, I'm new to this game <laughs> and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I need some time. <laughs> and I'm not new to this game and I know she's going to need time and I'm yes. going to need time. So, so yeah. um, and then our plan is that we will come back and do morning news is probably for the first little bit, just because we need to babies are hard to work around and right. short episodes are going to be better and absolutely honest to god nobody has time to read when you have a newborn exactly and so, the editing like i can't just sit at my computer for you know <laughs> 10 hours straight and just no edit. and so we yeah. are going to just adjust the show as we need to we mm -hmm. are going to keep it going because we love it yes. and we are very very excited about this but Absolutely. Yeah, we just don't know 100% what it's going to look like when we come back, just because, you know, we're just seeing how it goes. So, yeah, and we just bear with us. We'll miss yeah. you guys, but obviously, we'll still we, be on like social media and everything like that. So, we'll still chit chat, but totally. And yeah, the beginning when we first found out we were pregnant, we definitely talked about changing the name of the show. <laughs> Oh, yeah. morning sickness and murder because we were both so so ill so like, yeah if you notice during <laughs> the end of the manson family and all throughout diane downs if we were <laughs> seeming a little bit off or blah or anything or it's out of breath we were so <laughs> sick <laughs> we, were, we were like oh my god i should find because we like record all of our have video of all of our recordings, but it's not pretty. But like during those times, I should go back and just find what we looked like. Cause it was, please bad. don't, oh. it's not okay. <laughs> you know, I had some pretty, some pretty legendary outfits on the go. Like, <laughs> oh, and then when it was so hot this summer, I was like, I can't die. Like dying. Cat. Well, like while we were recording, so I was just dying of heat. So I had my belly full on out, which Michelle. Oh yeah. Like there was like, probably, it was way, way out. So did I. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sun's out, bumps out. That was like my theme for the summer. So. Totally. So yeah, yeah, that's so that's our news and we're super psyched. And yeah. We actually got to do a really fun photo shoot yes. together, which was yeah. a blast. And we did a fun bump reveal for yes. Murder Emerlo that we will post on our socials. Yes. And we just wanted to give a huge shout out to Cheryl Malin Photography because she is amazing. She had so much fun with us. Oh my gosh. Like, she's the best. <laughs> yeah. We just had a blast. And it was goofy and silly and, and I'm so just, much fun. Oh my gosh. Just having pictures is just 
so sweet and they're really well done. And it's just like so amazing that we're in this together. I just, yeah, so <laughs> we get to raise our babies together and I'm really excited yeah. about that. So. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm glad we ended this on a lighter note. <laughs> with such yeah. a heavy heavy episode i think that's a good way to, yes. to end it yes and uh yeah we look forward to continuing to bring you awesome content but yes. like i said we are going to finish up chernobyl and mm -hmm. maybe sneak a spooky episode in yeah we've got time and we will try yeah yeah just yeah. depends just... on when the little merlotters want to show up <laughs> yes yeah i'm hoping for december because my husband is like you have another hunting season baby yeah you're doing See, it by yourself this is, <laughs> this is an issue for me because it's hunting season and my clock is ticking here so i'm like it sure on it is. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> but anyway awesome well we're going to encourage you to remember to drink wine, even though we have been lying to you for months. We have been lying, but it's not good to keep things bottled up. Yeah, so sorry. Bye. Bye.